God, we do give you thanks that you, um, God, we do give you thanks for the entire story of Jesus and that you came from heaven to earth and that you lived among us, that you lived a sinless life and that you did no wrong, that you showed love and grace to all people, no matter what their background, their story, their history, and even their situation was in the moment when you encountered them. God, we are thankful that you loved people fully. And God, we look back on this injustice, the cross, that a man who did no wrong, that loved people fully, died but for the sins of everyone else in order to set us free so that we might live, so that we might have the freedom and the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. God, as we look back at this story and as we celebrate the resurrection, God, I pray that you will come and be here among us this morning and that you'll lead us into the scriptures and that you'll help us to see what you're doing in this world and how you're calling us to live in response to your work in the world. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I've heard several stories of people who have died and come back to life. And I've always kind of wondered if those stories were true or not. There was one that I heard just recently, and it was this guy that went out with some of his friends, and they were, um, they were partying. Um, they were having a good time. They were drinking. They were throwing back shots, if you would. Um, and uh, one guy in particular had too much to drink, and he passed out. He hit the ground with a thud, and his friends figured they could shake him and wake him up. And uh, when they could not, they called the paramedics. The paramedics came. They could not feel a pulse. They took this guy to the morgue, thinking that he was dead. And if you're familiar, hopefully not, with morgues, it is like a refrigerated room with shelves where they keep the bodies uh, that have deceased. And so they took him to the morgue, into this ice-cold room. They placed his body there. Uh, and sometime in the middle of the night, this guy wakes up, confused. All he can remember was a shot and hitting the ground. And he wakes up, and there's nothing but bodies in there, not a living soul in the room with him. And he begins to flip out, and he's pounding on the door trying to get out of that room. And there's a lady on the other side of the door that hears him pounding. And the question I really want to ask is, like, why did she open the door? Like, I, there is no way I would have opened that door. But she opens the door, and out comes this, this guy uh, with this, this story uh, that I'm sure he has told to all of his friends. I was dead, and now I am alive. Now People don't come back from the dead. Like, that's not really a, like, that's not a thing that happens commonly. That's not something that we expect or wait on. In fact, if it did, we, we, wouldn't, we, we wouldn't bury anybody, right? When somebody passed, we just take them back to the house, put them in the lazy boy and wait. Like, like people just don't come back from the dead. There's a certain finality to death that we need to have, right? Because it's that finality, it's that, uh, that, that end of the road moment, that uh, end of someone's life here on earth that allows us to begin the grieving process. It's what allows us to um, begin the process of accepting reality. And, and, and we never actually move on past the pain of that, but we at least can grieve and process and cope and, and face reality, and it's because of the finality of death because people don't come back 
from the dead. And so we don't just sit and wait and hope, but we have funerals and homegoing celebrations and we remember and we grieve together. And in, in the church, we celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that death is not actually the end. Now, it may be the end of one's time here on earth, but it's not actually the end because people don't, they don't come back from, from the dead. There's a certain finality there. And in the biblical world, it was no different. People just didn't come back from the dead. And so when Jesus died, everyone knew that this was the end. Nobody was sitting around waiting and expecting Jesus to come back from the dead, even with the fact that he told them, like Jesus told them over and over again. He made it clear, as explicit as he could, that he's going to die. And on the third day, he's going to raise again. And even with that, like even with Jesus saying that multiple times and teaching his disciples and having earned their trust and having come to love them and know them and them coming to know him and trust him, even though he said that no one believed it because people just do not come back from the dead. So when we get into the scripture, what we see is Mary getting up on the third day. That was a Sunday after Jesus was buried on a Friday. She gets up on that Sunday morning early and she goes running to the tomb. And she's not running to the tomb because she expects Jesus has risen from the dead. Like this isn't faith in Mary, right? This isn't faith that Mary has. And she's just running expectingly, hoping to see Jesus and be the first one there to see this happen. She's going because she wants to complete the burial process. In fact, when I read this story, the way at least I, I read it, and maybe I'm interpreting it and reading kind of some modern-day elements into it. But if you remember in the um, story of Jesus' burial uh, in, in John chapter nine, uh, 19, if you remember in that story of Jesus' burial, you, uh, who the, the two people were that buried Jesus. There was this guy named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, and there was a guy named Nicodemus. I imagine Mary going, those guys didn't know what they were doing. They didn't bury my Lord, right? Uh, and so she comes on the first day of the week, on Saturday, in order to give Jesus a proper burial. In fact, when we read in Luke, I think it's chapter 24, when we read Sunday, what did I say? Saturday. Oh, man. Sunday, the first day of the week. Uh, when, sorry. All right. I'm back. All right. So... Um, <laughs> and so, so what, what we read in Luke is what we, what we see is that Mary came running to the grave, to the tomb of Jesus, with all these spices and these oils to anoint his body, because in that day, that was just the way they did things. So when somebody was buried, they would anoint the body with these spices and, and aer, uh, um, kind of these aromatics, I think is, what, is that how you say the word, aromatics, and they would rub the body down, wash the body and rub it down with these ointments, and then they would wrap it up in this linen and this cloth, and, and then they would seal the tomb, and the idea was to, um, to kind of slow down uh, the decomposition of the body, and so that's why Mary was coming to uh, the tomb, and she runs there, and she finds that Jesus is no longer there. If you look in John chapter 20, where the scripture begins, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and found 
uh, came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, let me, let me pause there because it's interesting that it lists Simon Peter's name and then the other disciple, it says the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we haven't talked about this here because he's called the disciple that Jesus loved. Some people call him the beloved disciple. He's called that multiple times throughout Scripture. Now, tradition has it, and most people believe that this disciple whom Jesus loved was John, the one who wrote this gospel. And so John's like um, trying to be humble, but not, right? He's writing this gospel. He's like, I'm not going to write my name. I'm trying to be humble, but I really don't know how. So I'm just going to call myself the disciple that Jesus loved. Because if y'all remember, um, Jesus had, um, uh, he had the crowd, right? There was the crowd that was always following him. Then there were the 12 disciples, and there was his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And so John was part of that inner circle, but John wanted to distinguish himself and say, I was Jesus's favorite. So instead of calling himself by name, he goes, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And so it says, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So here immediately she's going, they've taken his body. We don't know where they've placed him. Something's going on here. And so it says there, it says, so Peter, the very next verse, because Simon Peter, he hears Mary and John or, or disciple whom Jesus loved, whichever it is, but I think John, uh, they, they come running to the tomb. It says, so Peter and the other disciple went forth and were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple, notice this, other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. That's another one of those humble but not moments, right? He's like, all right, Jesus loves me more, and I'm faster than Peter, right? Peter is slow. And so, so he gets to the tomb first. It says the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came and looked in the tomb first and stopped looking in. He saw the linen wrappings laying there but did not go in. Now, you could almost interject there. He's going, come on, old man. Come on, old man. Hurry up. And then it says in verse 6, so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up uh, in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come, first come to the tomb, right? Here he goes again. He, he wants you to know that he was faster than the old man Peter, right? So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. Now there's a little bit of question here, and I, I just want to stop here, and I don't know that we can totally uh, fully understand what that word believed meant. Uh, it's not critical to the story, but I just want to recognize that there's some debate about what that word believed meant. Um, so, so some people say that, that um, so, so Peter and John, they arrived there at the tomb, and when they walked in, they saw the clothes laying there, and Jesus was gone, and they believed Mary's report. They believed the report of Mary that somebody had taken the body. That's what Mary says. She said, they've taken the body, and I don't know where they've laid them. And so some people are saying, like, they, that's what they believe. There's others that are looking at the way that believed is used throughout Scripture and saying they had faith, right? So they came to the tomb, they saw that the uh, body was gone, and John goes, I believe in Jesus. I believe believe that he rose from the dead. Now, I don't know that, it's a little bit tricky here, but the, the next verse kind of clues me in at least to the direction where I lean on this, this verse. In verse 9, it says, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away to their own homes. So like the way this story plays out, I'm thinking they believed Mary's report, right? They believed that Mary, when she said that they've taken his body, and, and even in the video we see, and of course the video is not like a 
Like it wasn't recorded back then. It's not real. It's not like uh, in the moment reality TV. It is a portrayal. But in the moment, but like if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you would have seen John like jumping up and down, celebrating the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. He would not have gone home, right? He would have gone out celebrating. And even next week when we see the disciples all together, they're locked in a room for fear. And, and, um, like when you believe in the resurrection of the dead, like, and like you've walked with Jesus and talked with him, like you don't lock yourself in a room for fear. When Jesus has come and lived among you, died among you, and now is alive, you feel emboldened like we see in the Acts chapter 2 to go out and talk about what God has done in your life. And so I believe that, that, that they walked away believing that someone had taken um, Jesus' body. And all this is setting us up for the, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the climax of this story. It's the main event, if you will. Everything from uh, the beginning up until this point has been leading to the resurrection. In fact, if you remember, John's built this gospel around what he calls signs. There's these seven signs, beginning in John chapter 2 with Jesus turning water into wine. And then we had stories like Jesus healing um, this, this government official's son. And we had Jesus healing this guy who had been paralyzed since he was born. We had Jesus feeding 5,000. We had Jesus walking on water. We saw Jesus heal the man born blind in John chapter 9. We saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And so from uh, uh, wa- uh, water to wine to raising Lazarus from the dead, there's been this sense of momentum in the Gospel of John, these signs, these miracles um, that Jesus has performed. And they're moving rather swiftly and, and moving towards levels of more and more amazement. They're leading up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I don't know if you remember, if not, I'll remind you. Uh, we've talked about these signs in the Gospel of John, the fact that John calls these signs. And just the nature of a sign itself, even you can think about signs in our world, the nature of signs is they're always pointing to something beyond themselves. So you can think about maybe you're in a car and you're like starving, and you see a sign on the side of the road for Chick-fil-A, like next exit, Chick-fil-A, right? And your, your, your stomach's just grumbling, right? You don't, like the sign itself doesn't, doesn't satisfy, right? You don't, you don't like see the sign and then keep going past the exit, but the sign is pointing to something that good that is to come. It's pointing to something that you're going to enjoy, something that you can't wait to, to have, right? The sign points to something greater, something satisfying, something fulfilling that's coming, or, or like a sign for gas, like if you're on E. Of course, none of us wait till we're on E. Um, but, but if you're on E in your car and you know you're getting ready to run out of gas and you see Texaco or BP next exit, you celebrate over that, but, but, but not yet, right? You're still a little nervous wondering if you're going to make it to the gas station to get the gas. We don't, like, we don't stop at the sign itself and like go, ah, this is just what I needed. Right, the signs are pointing beyond themselves to something greater, something more fulfilling, something more satisfying that is to come. And so John uses this word sign to talk about these miracles that Jesus performs, right? They're always pointing to something beyond themselves, to something greater. And so when we get to the resurrection, just like the other signs in the gospel of John, John wants us to see something beyond the signs, something greater that is to come. He doesn't want us to stop and just marvel at the resurrection and say, wow, God did that. Because there's something greater, um, there's something greater that God is doing that's beyond the sign. 
Now, one of the things I've recognized in the Gospel of John is that John is a very intentional writer. Uh, He pays attention to the details. He tells these stories in a very intentional way. He records a story of Jesus, kind of not just not just for um, historical accuracy, but he he's selective in the stories that he's telling them, and even the way that he's telling them, and the details he's emphasizing, and he's he's doing all this for a purpose. Last week in John chapter 19, we talked about the fact that God was in control through the entire ordeal, and John wrote this story in order to emphasize that point. We saw that Pilate thought that he was in control, that he had authority over Jesus to crucify him, and he put this, uh, this nameplate over the cross that said, Jesus, King of the Jews, and how God was using Pilate, a man who had ordered Jesus' crucifixion, to, to, to tell the truth about who Jesus was, King of the Jews, not just King of the Jews, but King of the world. We saw these soldiers that were dividing up Jesus' clothing, and they were treating them like a prize, and God used them to fulfill prophecy. We saw the death of Jesus, that even in the death of Jesus, that God was in control because Jesus gave up his spirit. He didn't die. They didn't take his life. He gave it up. And then we saw in the burial of Jesus, that God was really intentional about orchestrating this so that a Jewish leader would rise up in faith and be able to take the body of Jesus down so it didn't stay on the cross and get eaten by dogs. And he took it down and he buried it in his own tomb. If you remember in John chapter 19, we'll go back there for just a moment. Those last two verses from last week, it says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And so this was on a Friday. Saturday was the Sabbath for the Jews. And so here we have Joseph and Nicodemus taking Jesus' body down quickly and laying it uh, in, in the tomb, doing what little preparation they could do. And that's why Mary's coming behind them to complete what they didn't get done. Um, But there's one detail in that story that's easy for us to miss or easy for us to reduce as insignificant. And that's the location where the tomb was. We see in that story that the tomb was uh, a new tomb that was in a garden that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, when Jesus uh, rises from the dead in John chapter 20, what we see is that Mary even thinks that Jesus is a gardener because they're in the middle of this nice garden. Now, I imagine Joseph probably bought this property because it was awfully cheap um, because it was close to the place where they were crucified people. Nobody wanted a tomb there. And so Joseph had bought this property and he had planted a garden there. In fact, he probably had hired gardeners. And when, when Jesus raises from the dead, he raises up in this garden, walks out of the tomb, and Mary thinks that he's a gardener. Look again at verse I'll pick up in verse 11. Look at what it says. It says, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and another at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. And and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, 
uh, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly why she didn't know it was Jesus. Maybe either Jesus had somehow veiled himself, or maybe it was because it was um, still early in the morning, kind of dark. Her eyes were blurry from weeping. She probably wasn't totally looking up uh, and just didn't recognize it was Jesus. Uh, and then it says, Jesus said to her, verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener. Jesus was buried in a garden, and he rose to new life in a garden. Mary thought that he was a gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. And so then at that moment, she recognizes that he's not a gardener, um, but that he's actually Jesus. Now, I think in this scripture, and it's easy to miss this detail, that John has in mind another story that happened in a garden. Uh, if you remember, and I'm sure a lot of us do, because we read the Gospel of John cover to cover in one sitting. <clears throat> I'm sure we all did that, because that was the challenge at the beginning of the Gospel of John, <laughs> was to read the Gospel of John cover to cover in one sitting. And I told you, there are some things that you notice when you do that, that you don't notice when you read it broken up in chunks like this. So if you can remember all the way back to January, at the beginning of the Gospel of John where we started, John began with the words, in the beginning. John had in mind Genesis there. He was throw, it was a throwback for the Jews. They all, all of their minds would have gone back to the book of Genesis where God created the world. And if you flip back there, you begin to see in Genesis chapter 1, it's that classic creation story where Jesus speaks things into existence. He says, let there be light, right? And then he speaks land into existence, and he creates the stars by just saying, let there be lights in the sky. And then he uh, fills the waters in the skies, the waters with fish, the sky with birds, by just saying, let there be. And so God, by the very power of his voice, creates. And then if you flip a little bit further in Genesis chapter 2, you see that God plants this garden. Um, man. I'm just imagining myself in a garden that God planted, <laughs> like better than the botanical gardens, I'm sure. Um, so God plants this garden, and he places Adam there in the middle of the garden. If you look a little bit further in verse uh, uh, 15, it says, Then God took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate it, to work it. So he places Adam in this garden to to work it. And so this is in the beginning what God did with the same words that John starts with in the beginning. And so in the beginning, God created all this stuff, right? And then he creates man. He plants a garden. He puts man in the garden. He recognizes that the man is lonely, if you look a little bit further. Uh, and, um, and, and so he creates a woman to be his companion uh, so that they can procreate, so that they can build community. And then he gives them instruction. He says, you can eat from all these trees, and they're delicious, by the way. God's going, you can make apple pies. You can uh, eat some avocados. You can, uh, some fresh mangoes. I don't know if y'all ever had a fresh mango. He's going, you can like enjoy all of this. But that tree, right? He says, that tree, you're not to eat from that tree. And then if you're familiar with the story in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? 
The very thing you're not supposed to have is what you want. And why does it always work that way with things that aren't good for you? Why can't it be like you can't have strawberries, fresh strawberries, or you can't have chocolate? Normally it's the thing you want that you can't have. Like, uh, uh, did I say that wrong? Why is it that why is it, does it doesn't say you can't have Brussels sprouts, or you can't have broccoli, or you can't have... I don't liver, yeah, yeah. Or for me, I was thinking about beef stroganoff. Like, why doesn't it say that? Um, it, it should say something like that. I don't like beef stroganoff, by the way. Um, some people do. <clears throat> Just the name. Just, if we, if, if we change the name, it's almost like chitlins. Like, <laughs> if you change chitlins to chicken, it might taste better. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> But God says, that tree, you can't have it. And so that's what they desire. In fact, I imagine they walked past that tree every single day, and they wanted it. And what happens is Satan comes, and he begins to entice them, to tempt them. It make, he makes that tree sound better than it actually is. And he says, did God really say you can't eat from that tree? Long story short, he convinces them that they should eat from the tree. They eat from that tree, and the whole world is changed. Now, you may be going, now, how did one tree eat in one piece of fruit off of one tree changed the whole world. This tree is um, this garden, this story, Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, the whole of Genesis is really a, a, a story that the Jewish people use to retell how the world was created, but also how our world got to be in such a disarray and as broken as it is. And what they saw in this story wasn't that a piece of fruit was so bad that the world was broken as a result of eating it, but rather that piece of fruit began to stand for every act of rebellion. And so they began to see that our world got to be the way that it is. It became a place. It became a place where people walked into churches and carry out violent acts. It, it became a place where children are forgotten and neglected and abandoned. It became a place. It became a place where families are broken and there's a little bit of dysfunction or a lot of bit of dysfunction in all of our families. It became a place where there's hurting and pain and suffering and hardship one act of rebellion at a time, one piece of fruit at a time. And so what we see in the Garden of Eden, that what began there changed this whole world. It changed it from what we see in Genesis 1, where God said, let there be, and behold, it is good. It became from that to this world that is broken, this world that is painful, this world that is sinful. And all that happened from an act of rebellion in a garden. And I believe what John is doing in John chapter 20, with Jesus being buried in a garden, him raising from death, in the garden is he's showing us that what um, that sin and death, sin and um, this hardship, struggle, and this pain entered the world in a garden, and sin and death are now being defeated in a garden. That what John wants us to see beyond the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that God is at work in our world and he's restoring everything, that God is making all things new. And so when we read in John chapter 20, 
It's easy to get caught up and sit back and marvel at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But God wants us to see, John wants us to see, that God is bringing about restoration in our world. That's what God is about. In fact, in Revelation, when we read there, we see in Revelation, I think it's chapter 21, John writes, this is the same John. John is writing uh, about this new heaven, this new earth, this new creation that God is bringing about. And he says there, there's going to be no more pain and no more suffering. He gives us a glimpse in that world. There's going to be no more tears. God's going to wipe away all the tears. And in fact, you could go on and you could say there's going to be no more hunger. There's going to be no more abandoned kids. There's going to be no more senseless murder. There's going to be no more crime. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is making all things new. And John, and the rest of the New Testament, in fact, is simply inviting us to participate in God's work of making all things new. You see, we as a church, we get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we sit and we marvel for a moment. But we must not lose sight of the fact that God is inviting us into this work that he is doing. God is saying through the resurrection, come and be a part of what I am doing to bring about restoration in this world. Come and be a part. Live as hopeful people. Live as people with new joy because you know that the situations of this world do not dictate or determine the situation that is, not, that is to come, that the pain of this world does not say anything about the pleasure that is to come. The hardship of this world does not say anything about the wholeness that God is creating. Those things have no hold on God. God has the defeated them on the cross. When they buried him, they thought they had him. But when he got up from the dead, he's making a mockery of the grave and he's celebrating the fact that he's alive and victorious and nothing can hold him down. We have the victory in Jesus Christ. It is ours. And this gospel is inviting us to celebrate that every day. You know how we celebrate it, right? Not by simply singing songs, not by simply raising hands, not by simply saying amen, but by going out of this place and making a difference in the places we go and loving the people we encounter no matter what their story is, no matter what they look like, no matter even if we... Um, if we dislike them and rather say something mean to them, God is calling us to go out and to be light in this world, and we do that because of the resurrection. What we see in the resurrection is an invitation to be a part of God's work of making all things new. For some of us, we've accepted that invitation. We've said, I want to be a part of that. Um, sometimes not even knowing fully what that looks like. In fact, all of us didn't know fully what that looks like. And when we think about the life of faith, the life of faith is best lived by giving God a yes 
at the forefront to everything God will call us to do. Because the truth of the matter is, God knows best. We can judge from our circumstance or our situation. But if Jesus would have judged from his circumstance and his situation, when the soldiers came to arrest him and take him to the cross, he would have been like Hussein Bolt. Like he would have turned and ran and gotten out of that situation with a quickness, and he would have missed out on the glory of the cross, the glory of what God wanted to do through his life. So we give God yes. The scriptures challenge us to give God yes in the same way that Jesus said yes to God. That even if my yes takes me through the darkest night of my life, even if my yes means the ending of my life, the abandoning of hopes and dreams and situations that I did not imagine or plan for myself, that even if my yes means that, I'm believing that trusting God through that, that God will get the glory. And this morning, if you have never said yes to God, if you've never believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you've never given your life to God, I want to invite you to use this story where God invites us. I want to invite you to meet me back there at the Next Steps table. And let's talk about what it looks like to accept Jesus Christ as your risen Savior, as Lord, as the one who's defeated death and has promised you life. And this morning, we're going to share in communion. And you can come back to the next steps table and meet me during communion, or you can meet me at the end of church, and we can talk about this. Um, but we celebrate communion as a church. We come to these four tables around the room and we eat bread and we eat juice as a way of remembering the fact that Jesus died and didn't stay there. That he died and rose from the dead. And so, as we've come to this point in John, we come to these tables celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and then we can share communion. God, we give you thanks this morning that you came and made your home among us. That you lived a perfect and sinless life, yet died as a criminal. That you were mocked, you were beaten, you were bruised, you were pierced. And God, that story, it's the very story that shapes our lives and gives us hope. Because that was not the end. You rose from the dead. You are victorious. And that victory is now ours in Jesus Christ. And so as we come to these tables, God, I pray that you will remind us of that and help us to live every single day of our lives as victorious people. And God, that we will rise from our seats and we will declare you as Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, the only one in whom there's found life, eternal hope and joy. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.